their way to the back door. You're doing it already beautifully. Thank you. And somebody can help them get where they're going. Again, good to see you here this morning. And that was uh, Adam Radcliffe, who is one of our church members and has recently become an intern for Downtown Prez. He was helping lead us in worship. And um, that was one of our ruling elders, Jimmy Green, who led us in prayer. Just want you to know who these folks are. But uh, we're glad you're here. And if, if you haven't been with us before, we are studying a section of the Gospel of John this summer. And it's, uh, it's a section that's been called the Upper Room Discourse. It's called that because it starts a few chapters back when Jesus gathers with his disciples to have the Passover. And uh, he transforms it into what we call the Lord's Supper. And he just pours his heart out. He says all these things that he wants to say before a few hours go by. And he's taken into custody. He's rested. The next day he's uh, crucified. So it's, it's really rich and just wanted us as a church to slow down and hear these words. It's very dense. And um, even, even slowing down, it feels like we're drinking out of a fire hose. But uh, we're going to look at this section that begins in John chapter 15 verse 18, and that's in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. I've told some of you recently that I I feel like I'm catching myself do this thing that older people used to do to me when I was younger. It's kind of this old man thing where you freeze children in your mind where you saw them last, and then you're shocked that they kept living, you know, and growing. And I remember people doing this to, to me when I was little, and I've started doing it to, you know, children in this church or my friend's children. You know, you may have some, uh, a friend's child, and she was 10 the last time I saw her, so I just froze her at 10, that, that look and that height. And then, you know, I look up, and she's 17, and she's driving, and she's doing college visits because, hey, seven years went by. That's what a living person does. They grow. Um, one of the ways that the Bible describes itself, and you may have heard this expression before, it's from the book of Hebrews, that the Word of God, the Scriptures, are living and active. Uh, and here's what that means. I, you know, I've, I, I've, I've heard someone say that the, the mark of a great book, not just a good one, is that a great book grows with you. You know, if you read a great book at the age of 10, you can feel that it's great, but you might come back to it in your mid-20s or your mid-50s. And, the, you know, the, the text is still the text, but the book has grown with you. And now as a 30-something or a 50-something, it's just you see even greater richness that was there all along. Uh, the, the ultimate example of a book that's like that is the Holy Bible. It's not that the words have changed. And some of you have heard me say that it's almost reached the point of embarrassment for me that I'll have these aha moments of things I'm learning as I'm studying. And, but the aha moments are about things that it has always said, you know, like it's always explicitly stated it. I just couldn't see it. And then I saw it. And that really happened to me, uh, in studying this passage for this Sunday, because I, I, I sort of froze it where I saw it last. And it's not that the passage became a different passage. But as far as just seeing what's there, it, it grew. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. And then I want to read the passage and, and dive in. Um, Jesus, in this, in this part of John, he just got through saying, Look, you've got to be connected to me to live, to bear fruit, to have eternal life. 
You can't just know about me. You must be connected to me. He uses the metaphor of, I'm the true vine, you're a branch. If you're disconnected from me, you're like the dead branch on the ground, withers, dies. If you're connected to me, you can bear fruit, prayers will be answered, all these things. But you've got to be connected to me. And then we, after that, he talks about, and you guys, you, know, you apostles that I'm up in this room with, or walking around with, you must love one another. And when you do that, you're going to set the course for the whole church. You, you must love one another as branches that are connected to the same vine, drawing the same life from the same vine. What comes next is him saying, okay, if you're connected to me, you have life. If you're connected to one another, that should show itself in loving each other. But what about in your interactions with the larger world? What's your experience going to be? And Jesus, as always, is very honest. Now, I thought I knew what he meant when he says what he's about to say, but the passage grew on me. It says, when you interact with the world, there's going to be pushback. And I'd read that before. I'd heard that, you know. But what's surprising is who he says the world is or where you find the world. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father God, for what we're getting to do right now. Thank you that we get to sing to you, that we get to say your words back to you, that we get to be honest about our own sins and failings, that we get to hear you remind us of the good news, that we get to come to your table. But thank you that we get to hear your words. And we pray that you'll help us. Please help us to hear you and open up our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
I want to tell you about a guy that I got to um, be in school with for one year. I believe it was just one year, but I overlapped with him in seminary. And some of you have heard me say that I, I'm not a scholar, but I, I have a real regard for academia and scholarship. And um, I, it's really cool to see people who've been peers of mine or who are younger than me who've gone on to really like get expertise in fields, all kinds of different disciplines. I bet you know people that got PhDs. Some of you have PhDs and things like that. But uh, this is a guy who graduated from Clemson University in the early 90s and then uh, went on to Covenant Seminary. That's in St. Louis, and that's where I went. It's where Jake Patton went. Then went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and, and got a Ph.D. in uh, theology. And that's the seminary that Brittany Ailes went to for her counseling degree. She's on staff with us. Very high caliber academically, very excellent school. Then even went and did additional uh, graduate work at Fordham University in New York City. So really, he's a real scholar. Terminal degree, published, taught, all that good stuff. And so uh, the, the part I've left out is that he's African-American. And as we've been talking about a little bit more in here lately and, and trying to think about what this means for us as a church and as a denomination, our denomination has been very homogenous, very white. And so anytime we see racial diversity coming up in our midst, it really should be like a cause for celebration. So you'd think that here's a guy... He went to our denominational seminary and got really top-tier training and theological studies and wanted to teach, really believes this stuff, really believes in the authority of God's Word, really believes in the power of the gospel, really believes that theology matters, stuff that we're supposed to be about. So you'd think that like, people would be cheering him on. And uh, a few years ago, he wrote candidly about his experience just a few years into putting on the scholar hat in, in our denomination. He, he said this in the context of, of reviewing a book, and it's a book that's actually about the church where I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and about its own history and experience with the racial divide and what that's meant for that church. But as he was commenting on that, he wrote, as of this writing, for at least six years, I have been repeatedly and regularly called the N-word. Quote, his name is Anthony Bradley. Anthony Bradley, the Negro prince of the PCA, comma, the token Negro, comma, filthy pervert, stain on the bedsheets of life, comma, Anthony Bradley, the affirmative action, Ph.D., and other racial slurs all over the Internet, now, what, what you wouldn't be as surprised to hear would be that that was from readers online, just some kind of somebody trolling around online that's just not a Christian, hates Christianity, so puts him in the, in the crosshairs. But he said it came from people within our own community. That, that what he was bumping into was not just disagreement, it was hate. That is something that Jesus said we should not be surprised by. And I'm already, I'm already kind of showing my hand as to, as to what the surprise was in this passage for me. But when we hear the language, uh, this is all through the New Testament, the language of the world. Typically, that doesn't mean planet Earth. 
what it means is, is a system. It's a global system that's at odds with God. And it might be a system that like has a moral exterior to it. It might be a system that is just outwardly, I don't give a rip about God. I don't like God. I don't like religion. I don't care who knows about it. But just the whole thing is a global system that is opposed to God. It's the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. It's the opposite of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not surprised if you know that category to say, okay, yeah, that's what's going on in the world at large. But as Jesus is sitting with these apostles and he's just about to be taken into custody and he's telling them, look, here's how life is going to be. And he says, the world is going to hate you. What surprised me is how he describes who the world is. And I want you to see this too. Um, here's, here's how I'm approaching it. The hatred of the world and the answer to the hatred. Okay? The hatred of the world, pretty straightforward, and the answer to the hatred. Now, just, again, Jesus is very pointed. He doesn't nuance it. He just says this is how it's going to be. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Uh, the second part of verse 19, the next verse. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He, he just says that's how it is. But then look at how he develops it about what this, what this hatred is like, where it comes from. The first thing is this. It's a package deal. In other words, it's not just because of how you conduct yourself or your personality or how you communicate, but it's a pack, this hatred is a package deal. Here, let me show you what I mean by that. Look in, verse, uh, look in verse 21. All these things, this hating, this persecuting, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And Jesus uses that language a lot in the Gospel of John. That means God the Father. They don't know him who sent me. Look down in verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. In other words, look, if you're connected to me and I was sent by the father and he and I are one, I do what he sent me to do. My words are the words he gave me to say. If you're connected to me, if the world already hates him and because I show everybody what he's like, the world hates me. If you get connected and identified with me, they'll hate you too. You've been brought into this package deal. And here's the other thing. It's just baseless. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. Look at, look at his language in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse, no pretext for their sin. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Like for, like, for instance, one of the times that Jesus came, I would say the closest to, to saying something in a joking way in the Gospels, but it was in a not funny moment, is that a bunch of people picked up stones to kill him, to stone him. And he says, hey, you know what? I've done many miracles in your midst. For which of those are you stoning me? And of course, it's not a funny moment, but the irony is so thick that, you know, I have gone into your villages and, and for the most part, eradicated disease and physical suffering in villages. 
When I've taught, it hasn't been in a secret corner somewhere. I've taught in the temple in the middle of the day. I've gone and taught in your synagogues in the towns. It, this hatred is baseless. It's irrational. Now, that part I knew. Like some of you might know the story of a guy named Jim Elliott. Uh, you might have heard of a writer named Elizabeth Elliott. She passed away kind of recently, but her first husband, Jim Elliott, was a missionary, studied at, studied at Wheaton. Kind of the old-fashioned missionary, let's go to the jungle, let's come in on a plane, let's drop gifts to people, let's send them messages in their language that we're your friends, let's send them gifts, you know, we come to help you. And they get speared to death, just martyred, irrational, like just killed for no, for no reason. Now, you can hear stories like that and go, okay, that's the way it's always been. The world hates God and the people of God. But then, the more I looked at this passage, it had grown on me. I don't mean it changed. I mean, I, I, I changed. Who is the world in this passage? Let, let, let's, let's go back into this. In the first two verses, 18 and 19, Jesus keeps using the term the world. He says it six times. The world, the world, the world. And then he switches to they and them and their, talking about who the world are. Then what does he start saying about them? The people who are the world, the people who will hate you. Here's a few samplings. Look, look back in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. When you think the world, what do you picture in your mind? Or if you were going to picture the world in the first century when Jesus says this, what would you picture? Would you picture like Rome or Greece or the nations? Did Jesus ever go to Rome and teach people? Did he ever go to Athens and speak publicly? Look down at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Did uh, the people in Athens, did they see Jesus' ministry or see his miracles? People in Egypt, people in... Did they see that? Look at verse 25. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a quote from two psalms. But in particular, it's a quote from Psalm 69, which was understood to be a psalm about the Messiah. But that psalm said, they, the enemies of the Messiah, they hated me for no reason. And then go down to the bottom of the passage, verse 2. This is chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now, are you starting to see who the they is? Are you starting to see who the world is? The world is a global system. But where he begins the application of what it's going to be like to be hated by the world is it's going to be by people who believe in one God, unlike the rest of the, world, the earth. They believe in that this one God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that God gave a law. 
They believe that that law is to be the foundation for all ethics and morality. They believe in marriage being between one man and one woman. They believe in tithing. They sing psalms. They know Psalm 69. Okay, people of whom everything I just said, that's true, they're going to hate you. And the reason they're going to hate you is because they are the world. And I don't know if this is hitting you, but this, this hit me like it's never hit me before. The world can be people who believe in God and at some level believe in the Scriptures and even at some level want other people to believe the Scriptures and be lost. And, you know, if, if you take that like a set of lenses, what I just said, okay, and put it on which is what is happening to me, and look at John, things just start to jump off the page that I had never really given their weight before. Uh, under the passage, I've got these verses in italics. This is from John chapter 8. Jesus is in, is in Jerusalem. He gets into a real confrontation with a crowd of people. Now, where is he? He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. It was during a, it was during a Jewish festival. He's surrounded by people that believe in the one true God. He's surrounded by people who are descended from Abraham. And he says to them, or they said to him, where is your father? Because he's been saying, I'm going to leave here and go to my father. Where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And that sounds like things in our, our passage. But then get this, verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. The world can be in the right institution. This really dovetails with last week's sermon. Because what some of you may hear me saying is something like, you may hear me as being anti-Semitic. No, 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 no. You can be identified with the institution that believes in the true God and actually officially believes that the Bible is true. And you yourself can be the world. How do you spot that? And I think, you know, primarily we don't need to ask, how do you spot that in someone else? Like we're going to like, you know, run each other through, the, through a template. It's, how would you know that about yourself? Am I that person? Jesus once gave a great diagnostic. I mean, I think it's an amazing diagnostic for all kinds of things. Out of the overflow of the heart, you know what the rest of it is? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what in any of us, what our hearts are full of, what do we like to talk about? And that's an opportunity for us to stop and ask this question. How do I talk about Christianity? How do I talk about applying the Bible? Like, for instance, am I driven by the narrative of us versus them? Because that is huge in the church, and it's huge in the United States right now, us versus them. Is the main way I talk about the Bible, you know, I, I don't know what people are thinking anymore about uh, marriage. I don't know what people are thinking anymore about sexuality. 
I don't know what people are thinking anymore about parenting or family. What's going on with our culture? What is, is, am I consumed with cultural deterioration? And the main thing I think of is that I'm glad I'm not like that, and gosh, we have got to stand strong that we don't become that. Or, when I interact with the Word of God, first off, am I so exposed in my own sins, in my own failings, that the main, thing, the main failings that I've got to think about right now are my own? But then I see this good news that is so great that I don't lose hope, that it is powerful, and that I know that, you know, to be frank, even if the whole country did go, quote, to hell in a handbasket, the gospel is still awesome. It's still powerful. God can save whoever he wants to. The Holy Spirit really does live inside people, and it really is the best news ever. But we give ourselves away with our words. Us versus them can be a way to actually believe. I mean, because God made us to know this. He, he made us in such a way that we know this is true. That he, that he exists and He's real and that He is the one true God. And He makes human beings in such a way that we know His law is true. We know that if people did all those things we would all be better off. We can know that and agree with it and still at the end of the day not know him and not really be connected to Jesus. That's telling. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, if you go to Yemen and you make it in there somehow as a Christian and you just start telling people about Jesus, they may kill you, although that would be true. That would be an application of God's Word. But he's saying this. It might be your experience that if you really go from us versus them to really owning your own sinfulness, that maybe the big, maybe the big problem in Greenville right now is me. Maybe the big problem with the United States right now is me. But that... Because of God's mercy, only because of His mercy, God is my Father, and Christ is my Savior, and the Spirit dwells inside me, and that is good news for anybody, and there's hope. If you really buy into that, you may not just get hostility from, you know, Yemen. You may get hostility even from those inside the church. Jesus says, expect it. And you know what? I can't speak for you, but I know for me, when I hear that, my initial response is, I think I can beat the system. I think I can still get them to like me. I will be so winsome, so enjoyable, so culturally engaged, so, so adept at navigating difficult conversations that I can beat it. And you know what? If that's right, then Jesus is wrong. You will, if you identify with me, not just outside the church, but at times inside the church, you will be hated. And I feel like every so often, for we who are people pleasers, for we especially who are nice Southerners, I have to say these words for my own sanity. They're Jesus' words. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Can you get everybody to like you? Can you get everybody to say, man, she is awesome. Woe to you. That's what they did with the false prophets. 
When you get pushback, when you get hatred, when you feel like somebody's shooting over me, but the bullets are hitting me, that's what happens. They're shooting at God the Father and God the Son, but I'm taking the bullets. When that happens, on that day rejoice. For so they, they treated the, the real prophets, the true prophets. But part of following Christ is to even be identified with Him in being radically misunderstood and radically misconstrued and even abused. That's the hatred of the world. What's the answer to the hatred? You know, I've already said this, that um, the hostility of the world can be aimed at you. It's, or it can come at you. It's aimed at God the Father and God the Son. If you're connected with them, you can feel the bullets. The anger and the hatred is at God. So what does God do about that? And this is where we really have to be careful because you know what's really easy to do is to think that God responds to things the way we we respond to things. So when someone hates me, the way I naturally respond is, I don't like them. And if I'm honest, if someone hates me, the way I actually respond is, I hate them. So the world hates God and he knows that it hates him. So what does he do about that? Is he like us? Look in verse 21. This is so easy to fly past, but it's a big deal in the Gospel of John. Verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And that language shows up in John quite a bit. That Who is God? God the Father is the God who sent Jesus. God the Father is not the one who's the mean, belligerent tyrant. And you've got this nice son who says, Dad, I know you're angry. Let me talk to them and let me handle it. And he goes, okay, but don't even tell me what they're like. God the Father sends God the Son. And that should remind you of a famous verse, if you know any verses from John. It's maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. But the way we quote it, it it almost sounds like we think it was said to a giant arena full of people. Like like an Olympic, I'm I'm required by law to use an Olympic illustration at this point. You know, like something in Rio, just this gigantic arena full of every country. And that, you know, almost like Jesus comes over the loud system and says, okay, listen, could I have your attention, please? God so loved the world, glad you're here, that he gave his only son. But who did Jesus say it to? He's sitting with a devout Jew named Nicodemus. And this guy is descended from Abraham. He's been circumcised. He is committed to the Torah, to obeying the details of the law of God. He believes that all other gods are false gods. The only true God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says to him, God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then the next verse that we don't quote as much is this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. 
He's talking about the salvation of the world to a devout religious man. The answer to the hatred is that first God sent His Son to rescue people who hate Him. How do you change people who hate God? We can't. But God can change people who hate God. He can send His Son to bear all their hatred on His head and then get what it deserves so they won't ever experience that. And they can be credited with His perfect loving life. And then He says this in verse 26, when the Helper comes. Now, if you haven't been here, that's, that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me. And get this. And you, and these men he's with, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. A couple of things here. Number one, never forget the love of God. And we try to be very honest in here about the fact that God, well, just as Jimmy said when he was praying, God is holy, holy, holy. God is just. God does have wrath. The day of judgment will be a day of judgment. And God is love. I mean, when, it, let, let me put it this way. If you find yourself in an experience where you do deal with one of these people, and if, I, if, if God gave me the choice, you can either have the guy from Yemen or the churched one. Give me the guy from Yemen. It is hard to top the hatefulness of a lost religious person. It's tough to top the hatefulness of a lost churched person. But if you find yourself in the crosshairs with one, first off, remember your own sin. But then remember, okay, he or she is so angry right now, and God loves her. God loves loves him. God sent his son for him, for people like us. Never forget the love of God because when we forget it, guess what we lapse into? Us versus them. She's a nut. He's a nut. Why are people in the church so weird? And what's driving that is that, you know what? I just showed up with better sense than her or him. But the second thing is this. We could dream bigger than we're dreaming right now. And I've mentioned this before because I I see it in my own life. I think that we tend to think, you know, I've got a person in my life that I think is about to become a Christian. And usually the reason we think that is because they already like me. And they already find me enjoyable. So they're almost in the kingdom now. (laughs) And they are already moral and they're possibly cute. And so I think they're just, they're like low, they're low hanging fruit for the kingdom now. That could be the case, but you know, the history of the church is of people who like hate God and hate Jesus and hate Christianity and hate religion, and then God saves them. Like one of them wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. 
This is a, it's a sect. It's undermining true Judaism. It's undermining the real worship of God. This Jesus of Nazareth is a heretic. And then he becomes the Apostle Paul. Not trying to. Because God saved him. I mean, could, could we, more than we have, go to bat on our knees for people who presently we know who hate God? Could we invite someone like that into our home? Could we verbalize the good news to someone who presently hates Christianity? Could we invite someone like that to things that we do in our church's life? Because here's how it's going to go. Either if you do that, not in a self-righteous way, but out of love for neighbor, it's either going to be hatred. And Jesus said, if that happens, jump for joy. Jump for joy. That is how they treated the true prophets. You are now actually following me. You're identified with my sufferings. Or... God begins to turn that person into somebody who loves him. And that is the best. It is the best when God reaches down, even for people who are already in the church, and makes someone who deep down doesn't like him, doesn't want to know him, into someone who loves him by his Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of being vessels to see that happen. Let's pray that God would give us courage and to be so convinced of his love that hatred does not intimidate us. Amen. Let's pray together.